ahead and take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and while you're doing that, let me say a couple of things. Uh, number one, please take this insert in your bulletin that Pastor Ben reminded you of, the gold from Golgotha, and hand that to a friend or a neighbor, take it to your workplace. If you have a bulletin board somewhere, you can stick this up. Uh, there's even some uh, uh, stores and, and, and places, business in our community that will allow you to post stuff like this, but get this out. Share it with someone. The best thing to do is hand it to someone personally and, and say, I would like for, to invite you to come with us on a, a Friday night to be a part of the Gold from Golgotha Good Friday service. And um, uh, one thing that's unique about this year's is uh, typically we have uh, brought in, along with Pastor Ben and myself, five pastors of local churches. And this year there's a Trinity connection with every preacher. Of course, um, Brother Glenn Lyles will be preaching. And uh, Reverend Behrman, who takes care of our facilities, will be preaching. But we've got three um, of our uh, young men who are headed to Bible college or seminary next fall that uh, we want to give an opportunity to preach. And this will be their preaching debut from this pulpit. So Trinity family, we want you to come encourage uh, Zach and Kent and Sam as they take one of those seven sayings and preach on Friday night, you come be a blessing to them. You say, well, I've heard all these preachers before. Uh, you haven't heard these guys unless you've heard them in youth group or uh, maybe a Sunday night devotion or maybe in the Awana ministry. They've had places and opportunities, but they haven't preached from this pulpit. So it'll be a first for them. And you come and uh, be a blessing to them, but also come and let's focus. Uh, don't you like this morning we were singing about the cross. Don't you so enjoy getting your eyes and your heart on the crucified Lord. That's what we're going to do Friday night. Sunday, a big resurrection celebration, but Friday night we're going to stop and look to the cross in a big way. I, I realize also today that it is Palm Sunday, and traditionally we might uh, take a break from the book that we were studying and, and maybe look at one of the Gospels and the account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey or, or, or something relevant to that but you know i think when jesus came into jerusalem when jesus knew that he was headed just days to a cross i believe that he was the very personification of love and our study of first corinthians happens to have us today in first corinthians chapter 13 so i can think of no better day to count out in chapter 13 a little bit and look at this subject of love so if you found your place in first corinthians chapter 13 let's stand together as we read this great chapter. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I donate my goods to the poor, and if I give my body to be burned and I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy it is not both boastful, it is not conceited, it does not act improperly, it is not selfish, it is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs, it finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails or never ends, but as far as for prophecies, they will come to an end, as for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. And when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror. But then 
face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your great love. And Lord, as we sing of your love this morning, it lifts our own very hearts because we realize that we are greatly loved by you. Lord, I pray that we will understand this morning better not only how to receive your love, but how to give your love, how to make your love known in this world by the way we love you and the way we love one another. We are fully dependent upon your spirit to instruct us into your truth. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. The couple had been married for 50 years, and, and the wife explained to her husband that they were getting on up in years, and, and she thought that she just needed to go ahead and retire, and they knew they hadn't put much back, or at least the husband thought they had not put much back, and, and he said, baby, I just don't think, I just don't think either one of us can retire right now. And she went and she got a shoebox out of the top of her closet and came back and, and, and opened the shoebox. And there was a crocheted doll in that shoebox. And, and there was $100,000 that had been tucked away in that box. And he was like, my goodness, what in the world is this? And she said, well, you see, my mother told me that the secret to love the secret to love is that anytime I feel like arguing with you, anytime I feel like he's just a fool and doesn't know what he's talking about, she said for me to just keep my mouth shut and crochet a doll. And he felt pretty good about himself. He was like, one doll? The one doll that's, you kept your mouth shut and you crocheted one doll? That's the only time you ever thought I was a fool? The only time you ever wanted to argue with me? And, and he felt pretty good about that until he said, now where did you get the $100,000 from? And she said, well, that's what I got from selling dolls. For her, that was the secret to love. It's a secret sometimes we have a hard time grasping. We even have a hard time understanding the very nature and definition of love. And we're no different from the people in Corinth a lot of times. Now, we've already seen this church had a lot of issues. I mean, if there was ever a dysfunctional church, but that still was a church that God loved, that Jesus died for, it was the church of Corinth. And we've already studied how their worship was suffering. I mean, last week we saw that there was division, there was all, all kinds of discrimination taking place and other problems that they had. Their worship was suffering. Their walk with God was suffering. They were caught up in all kinds of sexual immorality and other things, that, uh, exploitation of relationships and you name it. Their witness was suffering as a result of that. There was confusion, there was chaos, both when people would look at their walk with God and their walk didn't measure up with what they said they believed, that brought about confusion. But when you came into their worship services and they were trying to prove that they were spiritual with their spiritual gifts, and after Easter we're going to go back to chapter 12 and then look at chapter 12 and chapter 14 at, at the whole uh, issue of spiritual gifts, and they were abusing the spiritual gifts in all kinds of ways that was just bringing confusion and chaos into the, the, the church worship services and into their walk. Everything was just, just kind of a mess here. And so Paul, after filling the, the pages that we read earlier with, with correction, and, and before that, sound doctrine, Paul just talks about the nature of the cross and who God is and what Jesus Christ had done for them. He always precedes his practice with doctrine. So he told them sound doctrine. Here's why you should believe what you should believe and then practice. Here's how you should live it out. And so he's given them doctrine. He's given them uh, principles of, to live by. 
And now he comes back and he says, all of this could have been accompanied with, with one thing. If you could get this one thing right, the rest of it would kind of take care of itself. And that one subject is the subject of love. The subject of love. Certainly, Paul had received the words of Christ from the other apostles that Jesus said when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He narrowed it down to two commandments, and he said the greatest one is this, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and with all your strength. And he said the second commandment is something like that, and that is you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's the vertical relationship. You need to be in right relationship with God, have a love relationship with God. That's what you were created for. And the reason that you're still living on this earth is so that you might love others as yourself, that you might have a a right relationship with others. Love God, love people. Now, how is love reflected? See, the church at Corinth, they were kind of all caught up in trying to prove they were spirit-filled Christians. And the apostle Paul would tell them, hey, I know that all of you, were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. But that baptism of the Holy Spirit that had taken did not necessarily mean that they were going to live as Spirit-filled Christians. Ephesians 5.18 tells us we're to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that they were born-again believers, baptized by the Holy Spirit, did not mean that they were going to always be living right. They needed to learn to be Spirit-filled Christians. And he would point out that there was something better than the gifts that they were confusing, all that that he would deal with in chapter 12, all that he would deal with in chapter 14, he would say, listen, there's a better evidence than all of that. So I want us to look this morning at this chapter and see how love is a direct reflection of the Spirit-filled life. The difference that love makes is all the difference in the world. 1 Corinthians has been full of passages talking about how we should be different. And if there's one thing that makes all the difference in the world, It should be our love, and it should be a reflection of the love that we received from Christ. The love that took him to a cross is the love that is made real in us when we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And we'll see that uh, with just three simple truths I want us to embrace. The first one this morning is I want us to see love's credentials. Love's credentials. What I mean by love's credentials. Love, more than the gifts or anything else, love is the supreme mark of the Spirit-filled life. The supreme mark. In chapter 12, when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and and some of them were struggling because with their gifts, they were literally trying to strut their stuff to prove who was really Spirit-filled. And he said, no, I want to show you. Look at verse 31 of chapter 12. He says, desire the, the greater gifts, but I will show you an even better way. And remember, there weren't chapter numbers and verse numbers when Paul originally wrote this letter. It just flowed one passage right into the other, and he says, I want to tell you something better. Something better than gifts, Paul? Absolutely. Something better than the spiritual gifts. They're necessary, they're awesome, they're wonderful, but I want to show you something better, and that's this thing called love. Love is the supreme mark of the spirit-filled life. And he goes on and he talks about how the other things don't quite measure up. In verse 1, we read just a moment ago, spiritual gifts are an inaccurate credential when it comes to the spirit-filled life. He says, I can speak the, the languages of men and of angels, but if I have not, no love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I'm operating in some kind of gift here, some kind of ecstatic utterance, you name it, the, 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 the tongues of men and angels, if I don't have love, then I am nothing. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. 
Now, now he lists a lot of other things there, but he starts with love. Everything flows out of love, the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're walking in the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so, hypothetically speaking here, he, he is naming a situation where it's possible to seem to be exercising the gifts of the Spirit, but not walking in love. does the same thing with prophecy in verse 2. If, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries... See, the spiritual gifts here are incomplete credentials because they're without love. It's possible to exercise prophecy without love. And he even said prophecy. Of all the gifts, desire prophecy, the ability to speak forth the truth of the Word of God in a way that people can understand it and receive it. He says desire prophecy, but if you have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, if you have this knowledge And so you've got wisdom and knowledge and the ability to communicate that knowledge to others, but you don't have love. You'll learn something very quickly in life, and that is that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And if you're not loving people, then operating in that gift, you might say, I've explained it to my kids over and over and over again. I've tried to drive it home. But if it's not in the context of a love relationship, it doesn't matter how much wisdom you try to shine into their lives, they're not able to receive it. And so love is is what lays the foundational work of a relationship through which we can teach and and preach and instruct and guide. And then in verse 3, if I donate all my goods, see, our level of commitment, our level of even investment. If I donate all my goods to feed the poor, give my body to be burned. That's pretty strong devotion, pretty strong commitment. But he says, if I do this and I don't have love, if I do this and I'm just trying to point to myself and say, wasn't that wonderful? If I do that or if I embrace some kind of religious belief like what Islam has where they say, if you give your life as a martyr, then you will merit, you will earn the greatest rewards of heaven has to offer, then you're missing a point. See, a good friend of mine who grew up Muslim in the nation of Egypt and came to faith in Christ because of underground church, he said, Robbie, there was one thing that really stood out among Christianity that we just didn't have in Islam, and that was love. We didn't talk about a love for God and a love for all people. We didn't have that. We were willing to give our body to be burned. We were were willing to to give our life for the cause of our faith, but it was still selfishly motivated. It was giving my life so I might be rewarded in heaven. Acts of terrorism point that out on a daily basis. He said, but Christianity showed me that I'm to give my life as an act of love for people out of the overflow of God's love for me. You can do all these things, he says, And you can appear to have some kind of anointing on your life. And it's possible even with all of that to to appear to be operating in spiritual gifts, to appear to have the power of God on your life and still not know what love is. And listen, church, it is possible. We're going to get into spiritual gifts because it's so important that we understand how God has gifted us and how to operate in those gifts under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but it's possible to look and act like you're doing that and even be lost because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these signs and wonders in your name? And Jesus said, I will say to them on that day, depart from me into eternal darkness. I never knew you. There was not a love relationship with Jesus Christ It was people trying to say, I've got something. 
I'm a steward of a, of a gift because of God's blessings and, and anointing on my life. But he said there was no love relationship. The greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And that kind of love becomes the supreme mark of the spirit-filled life. John says the same thing in 3 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not what? Know God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The very nature of God, the very character of God is love. And when we don't love, then we're not being Christ-like. And what John is saying, what Matthew says And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is love will be the natural outpouring of the Spirit-filled life. Spirit-filled Christians simply love. It's what you do, right? Remember the Geico commercials? You know, when Geico thought that they had exhausted every resource of a great commercial that would catch our attention, they they, they come up with another one. This is not an advertisement for Geico, and they're not my insurance provider, but, but I think it's a pretty good slogan. It's what you do. It's just what you do. Repeat that after me. It's what you do. All right, every time I point to you, you say, it's what you do. It's what you do. You know the commercials. Let me just mention a few of them, bring it to your remembering in case you forgot them. If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's one of my favorites. If you're a fisherman, you tell tales. If you're a cat, you ignore people. That's right. That's what you do. If your boss stops by, you act busy. If you are, oh, this is a cool one. If you are Dora the Explorer, you explore. If you are a golf commentator, you whisper. If you are Peter Pan, you stay young forever. So you got it. You got it right. It's what you do. If you're a mom, you call at the worst possible time. (laughs) <laughs> the latest one, if you are a couple, you fight over directions. See, it's what you do. If you are a spirit-filled Christian, you love people. It's what you do. It's what you, it's, it's got to be just where people already know in advance that that's what you do. If you're a spirit-filled Christian, you love people. It is the supreme Mark of the Spirit-filled life that you love people. You say, but you don't know some of the people God has put in my life. There's some people I'm related to. They're hard to love. That's why we have to be filled with the Spirit. Because Christ has to do in and through us what we could never do in the flesh. If you could choose to love them in the flesh, we wouldn't need the Spirit of God. So there are people that some of you uh, say, well, I'm related to somebody. Pastor Robbie, they're just hard to love. Some of you go to school with some people that are hard to love hear a lot of amens from the students. (laughs) Some of you work with people that are hard to love. A few amens there. Yeah, you work with people. Some of you work as a, maybe in education with some young people that are hard to love. Some of you have a employer, a boss that's hard to love. Some of you might have a neighbor that's hard to love. I mean, you've heard my story, the beer cans in my yard. Sometimes you have a neighbor that's hard to love. Sometimes you have a friend who does something that breaks your heart and it's hard to love. Some of you would say, Pastor, 
I can't really talk publicly about it right now, but it's hard to love my spouse like I'm called to love my spouse. You can't do it in your flesh. It is part of the Spirit-filled life, and if you are filled with His Spirit, you begin to love people in a way that you can't even explain. Is there anyone here who would say, I got saved a little bit later in life, uh, later enough in life that I can remember uh, plenty about what I was like before I got saved? And God gave me a love for people that I never knew I could have. Anybody been there? Just raise your hand if you've been there before. God gave me a love for people that I didn't know I could have. Amen. That should be what you do. Now, secondly, I want you to see love's characteristics. And you know these characteristics because we often read these characteristics at weddings and we put them in wedding bulletins and all of that wonderful stuff. But but this should be the characteristics of your life because these are Christ-like characteristics. These are the characteristics of love. It's a selfless manifestation of the Spirit-filled life. In other words, it manifests itself. It shows itself. It, it, it allows love to be flowing out of you, not just into you from the Spirit of God, not just in you from Christ who died for you, but it flows out of you. And so he gives us several words that describe and define love, and we're just going to work our way through these next few verses word and phrase, word by word, phrase by phrase. And this is a checklist, so I want you to ask yourself a question. This is, this is a test for you this morning. And uh, the, the real test is when you walk out of these doors and into your real world. But this is a test. I want you to ask yourself the question, am I loving as I should be loving? All right, love is. What is it? Patient. First word there in verse 4, love is patient. In the Greek, that's macrothumia, which means takes a long time to heat up, like the water heater in my house when everybody beats you to the shower. You know, macrothumia takes a long time to heat up. Now, heat has to do a lot of times with temper or being angry. If you love someone, it'll take you a little while to heat up and lose your cool with them. Now we're thinking, oh, I thought I, <laughs> thought I was doing pretty good, and he got me on the first one. Love is kind, the second word there, kind. The word kind means easy to get along with. Your family, your friends, your church, you, because you love people, you make yourself easy to get along with. Dr. Paige Patterson says it's a grace that pervades and penetrates the whole nature, mellowing there all that would be harsh. When someone says, because of something that happens spontaneously in public, in a private place, in a workplace, in a home, when they say, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, usually, usually, they can't afford to give them that much. We've got to be kind. Love is kind. Love does not envy, he says. Some translations say love is not jealous. I think New American Standard uses the word jealous. It refuses selfish motivations, in other words. The Corinthians desired spiritual gifts, but they desired spiritual gifts for personal gain. They desired spiritual gifts to say that for some reason they might be better than the people around them. Love is not envious. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful, he says. The word boastful, some translations say parade itself. The King James says vaunteth itself. You do not, in other words, strut your stuff if you love people. You don't make everything about you. It's, it's the word for boastful. It comes from the word which means to brag about yourself. To brag about yourself. This morning in our life group, we talked about the, the cross of Christ and how Jesus became 
our substitute there, how he became even sin for us. And someone said, that's what we brag about. Paul said, I will boast in the cross of Christ. And so when we begin to say, look at me, I'm doing pretty good. Some of us may, may even want to brag about our humility from time to time. When we're in a situation when somebody's trying to tell you what God did in their life and we're sitting there and we're not even listening to what God did in their life because in the back of our mind we're trying to say, how can I one-up them? How can, rather than hearing their story and letting them know we love them and are excited about what God's doing, we're, we're thinking, how, how can I kind of one-up that story? It says love doesn't do that. It doesn't parade itself. Love is not conceited or it's not arrogant or, or it's not puffed up, he says. It means we don't think of ourselves as better than we ought. In Corinth, they were thinking of themselves more than they ought. Uh, Paul told the church at Philippi that, you know, we're, if we have any affection, if we have any mercy, if we have any comfort in all that is the love of Christ, all that Christ has done for us, we should think of others better than ourselves. That will cause us to be unified. That will cause us to be like-minded. He goes on to say we should have the same mind in us which Christ had who made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a bondservant and became obedient even to the point of death, the death of a cross. So love is not conceited or arrogant. Look at verse 5. Love it does not behave improperly. It is not improper, or a translation might read rude. Love is not rude. It's the opposite here, this word rude or improper. It's the opposite of being tactful in expression. It's the person who says, before I open my mouth, I'm going to make sure I don't embarrass the people I love. I'm not going to embarrass my family. I'm not going to embarrass my friends. I'm not going to embarrass my church family. I'm not going to behave in an improper or rude manner. See, see the goal sometimes here, when, when, when someone is behaving improper or they bring about rude words or words that would embarrass or demoralize or tear down, usually their goal is to make someone else feel bad because they struggle with enough self-esteem because they don't have Christ esteem. They don't see themselves as someone for whom Christ died and is valuable in the eyes of God. And so the way they feel better about themselves, young ladies, you need to really understand this principle because somebody's going to say something bad about you, negative about you, and they're going to put you down. And you need to realize why they're saying what they're saying, be it some dude that's just being a jerk or, or another girl that's not being so nice, is because they're dealing with some deep insecurities in their own heart, their own soul, and they don't know how to find Christ's esteem. And we need to witness and share with them how they can find their esteem in Christ, the one who died for them. And so because they don't feel so valuable themselves, they try to tear everybody else down around them. And it can happen in all areas of life to all of us. Don't take that personally. They haven't learned how to love because they likely haven't learned how to receive love. Maybe they've come from a background, a situation where no one has ever showed them what real love is all about. Maybe the response we should have to someone who is rude then is to show them love and value in what Christ did for them. Love is not selfish, he says. Not after personal advancement. It does not come before... When, when, when we think of our goals and our dreams in life and things that we want to accomplish, maybe even things we want to do for God, we don't let those things come before the people that we love. We don't let our career come before our spouse or our family. We don't sacrifice the people we love on the altar of our own personal success. Love does not run over whoever it has to run over to get to where it wants to go. Love becomes God's means to take us where he wants us to go. 
Love is not easily provoked, he says. And this phrase, easily provoked, has to do with it doesn't react to aggravation. (laughs) It doesn't react to aggravation. It's not quick to point out someone else's mistake. One translation says, love is not irritable. See, here's what the enemy wants to do to you. The, 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 The enemy wants to jab at you. The enemy wants to try to get you to do something that crosses the spiritual boundaries you have laid those, those things that you know, hey, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to sound like that. The, the enemy will try to get you to be unloving because if we're a little bit irritable, if we're a little bit unloving, then we'll cross the boundaries. We'll make a big mistake. If I was going to use an illustration, uh, David's quarterback over here, if it's fourth down and two, you're at midfield, the game's tied, and you've got somebody that's going to blitz like crazy. Is Sam in here? Where's Sam? He might be up in the kids' center. Oh, there he is, back in the back. Sam is going to bring a, it's a scrimmage game, right? He's your teammate. Sam's going to bring a, a, a corner blitz. He, he's going to come at you as fast and as hard as he can. I know you're bigger than him, but he's pretty quick, right? And Sam's going to come at you. Fourth and two, you've got to get a first down. Is there a way you can get that first down without the ball ever being snapped? Possibly. He's nodding, yeah, yeah. He might, he might stagger the snap count in such a way, right, that you would draw him off sides. See, this is what this word is all about. The enemy is trying to draw you off sides. Love keeps the composure. And that's an awesome moment, isn't it, when you're the one, those of you who have ever played football, when you're the one on defense and they're trying to draw you off sides, and you stand, and you don't bite, and you don't give in, and, and they can't get you off sides. See, the enemy wants you to be irritable. The enemy wants you to be quick to where, to where when something happens, when he barks out your name, then boom, you're off sides, you're, out, you're penalized. Love keeps its composure. Love knows when it's the right moment, when it's not. Love is not irritable. Love, he goes on to say, keeps no record of wrongs. It does not assume the worst about people, and it does not point out all of the failures of others. Spirit Zodiades, forgiveness that does not lay the matter to rest is not forgiveness. Love lets it go. Love lets it go. In verse 6, we see kind of two sides of the same coin here. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It does not celebrate the iniquity, the sins of others, but rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't mean that you celebrate sin. But loving someone doesn't mean that you don't confront the sin in their life. If you love someone, you remember the proverb says, better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And so love doesn't celebrate iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth and says, man, when you're walking with God, I'm rejoicing in what God is doing in your life. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And when you stop and you say, well, that that just makes common sense, but back up a minute and ask yourself this question as you get prepared to um, uh, 
elect a, a new president next fall. I guess we've already had our primaries and everything. But when you ask yourself the question, okay, according to this, which candidate loves our country the most? Some of you are going, I give up. <laughs> I, I, I give up. <clears throat> because love does not celebrate iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. Sometimes it's hard to see anyone demonstrating that kind of love. He goes on to say, love bears all things. These four final phrases here, bears all things. It means, literally, the word for bear there has to do with a covering. It puts a covering over all things. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. I believe that means you help them overcome. Love doesn't tell everybody else what they did. You say, I want to be someone in your life. I may have to confront this out of love, but I want to help you overcome this because love overcomes. Love covers a multitude of sins. It bears all kinds of things. Love believes all things. It believes the best for people and not the worst. Some of you can think of others, even brothers and sisters in Christ, and in your mind, you're already assuming they're going to mess things up. You're already assuming because of the sins of their past that they're going to blow it in the future. But if you love someone, you believe God's best for them. You just believe God's best for them. And that is something only the Spirit of God can produce in you. The Spirit of God produces that in me. I sense that sometimes when somebody may want to say something negative about somebody who is a member of our church or somebody wants to say something negative about somebody that's a brother or sister in Christ. And they're like, man, why don't you just give up on them? I'm like, oh, I believe, I believe that they're going to get it right. I believe that they're going to experience God's best. I believe that, that their best days are ahead of them. And the only way I can say that is when the Spirit of God has put His love for people inside of me. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. You, you remain optimistic about the object of your love. Love endures all things. To endure means to remain under, to be able to stand under. So love possesses a resilience to things that would crush other relationships. When a husband loves his wife, they stand under the pressure. And if you say, but you don't realize the load I'm carrying. You don't realize the burden that I'm carrying. You don't realize what I'm standing up under in some of these relationships. And you're right, I don't realize what you're standing under, but I do know this, that when Jesus Christ went to Calvary's hill, he was under the weight of a cross. Not only was he under the weight of a cross, but when he was on the cross for you and for me, the sins of the world were poured out on him, and he was under that because of one thing, and that was his love for you and his love for me. Love endures. It remains under. It has resilience because of the Spirit of God producing Christ-like character and love in us. Every relationship will be tested. Your relationship with God and your relationship with people. Every relationship will be tested, but love will not fail the test. If you are a spirit-filled brother, a spirit-filled sister in Christ, the love that God has shed abroad in your hearts that you're sharing with others, that love will always pass the test. And so he comes through in verse 8, the first part of the verse, with this great phrase that kind of ends this poetic language here, and he says, love never fails. This kind of love is everlasting love. This kind of love never ends. God's love doesn't fail us. And when we learn to love as God loves, with that kind of agape love, unconditional love, then our love 
doesn't let us down, and it doesn't fail our relationships. And then finally, I want you to see this morning love's culmination. The culmination of love. What, what does all this come together as? It comes together as spiritual maturity of the spirit-filled life. It, it, it's a certain spiritual maturity that you have because you are growing in Christ. Love equals maturity. Did you see how he closed this passage? You've always thought, well, how did this relate to love? He starts talking about growing up, and he says prophecies, they'll come to an end. Languages, they will cease. Knowledge, it'll come to an end. Now we know in part, we prophesy in part. We don't have our mind around everything this side of heaven. But that when that, that which is perfect has come, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I came, became a man, I put away childish things. What was he saying? He said, something happened when, when the love of God was shed abroad in my heart. And I began to grow in that love. And I began to yield to the Spirit of God and let the Spirit of God produce his kind of love in me that only he can produce in me. I grew up. There was a certain maturity, a spiritual maturity about me. I handle things different. I handle things like a man and not like a child anymore. Now we see indistinctly, we see dimly through a, through a glass. Then we'll see him face to face. I know in part now, but then I will know as I'm fully known. I'm still a work in progress. God is working on me day in and out, but I'll tell you one thing, Paul says, now remain three things, faith, hope, and love. And out of these three, the greatest is love. Why was love the greatest? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ the Lord. Faith was necessary for salvation, was it not? Absolutely. But we won't need faith forever. We walk by faith now, but one day we'll walk by sight. See, I know my, my dear sister in the Lord who went to be with Jesus last week had remarkable faith, but she's walking by sight now. Faith isn't necessary anymore. Walking by sight and not faith. Faith is great, but we won't need it forever. Hope. Hope is the substance, you know, or faith is the essence of things. Hope for the substance of things not seen. So we have to have hope. When we hope for something, the Bible says we eagerly wait for it with anticipation. So, so hope still says I'm waiting for something to become a reality, but one day those things I hope for will become a reality, and we have that hope as an anchor steadfast and, and sure in this life. But when we get to heaven, it'll be anchors away, amen? It, we won't need that hope anymore. It will be a reality. We will be in the very presence of God. But do you realize when we get to heaven, when we won't need faith anymore, and we won't need hope anymore, love will just continue. Because love is the very character and nature of God. God doesn't need faith. God doesn't need hope. God's not, God's not sitting around saying, man, I hope things work out. God's in control. He is everlasting to everlasting. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God doesn't live by hope, but God is love. And God always has been and always will be love. The greatest of these is love because it is something we take with us. And you realize the only other thing we can take with us into eternity are the people that we've loved. We pour our lives into people and lead people to faith in Jesus Christ because of our love for them. We influence them for God's glory. And that love continues in heaven as well. The mature disciple, the spiritually mature Christ follower, lives with the end in mind, knowing that love lasts forever. We better grasp onto that because it's part of our eternal walk with God. We realize the, the significance of that in those relationships, it changes everything. Ultimately, love is a cross. Love is Jesus saying, I will be the man. 
I will be a real man. We learned this in, in our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights and Friday mornings. A, a man is someone who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and lives for the greater reward. Jesus showed us what a real man is when he took the cross and says, I love him so much, I'll die for him. See, a boy can have feelings of infatuations one day. A, a boy can have a crush. A boy can say he falls in love with a girl one day. A, a boy can follow his emotions and, and his feelings when it comes to love, and he can disregard his emotions and feelings when it comes to love, and a boy can bail out of the picture, and a boy can say, I don't love you anymore, but a man says, I will always love you. I'll love you to the end. Jesus loved us to the end. When we begin to love like that, that's a sign that we're not a boy anymore. We're becoming a man. Not a little girl anymore, but a woman of God who loves as Christ loved. The old song said, only fools fall <laughs> in love. But saints grow in love because it becomes an act of the will for the spirit-filled Christian to love as Christ loved. Will you bow your heads with me?